Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and paint and troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get For years now, we've talked about concerns about government officials across the political spectrum uh, demanding companies take down certain content or in ways that they threaten retaliation for expressive acts or speech by those companies. Uh, We've always found this to be problematic by government officials, even when uh, there may be alternative underlying reasons backed by good policy for the, uh, the, the statements and arguments by those government officials. For example, we criticized Elizabeth Warren for saying that she wanted to use antitrust law to punish Amazon for tweeting a snarky tweet at her, uh, just as we criticized Ted Cruz for threatening to take away Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption in response to its decision to move the All-Star game following Georgia passing a law seen to be limiting for voting rights. In both cases, even if you agreed that the underlying proposals were good, uh, and in both cases they might well be, the fact that they were explicitly uh, said as retaliation for speech seemed like a huge First Amendment problem to us. Uh, This issue has been expanded into the social media content moderation wars. Uh, For years, we've pointed to two key cases for arguing why government officials cannot threaten retaliation for speech. Um, There's the famous Supreme Court Bantam Books case from 1963, and then one more recently that we've talked a bunch about on TechDirt is the Seventh Circuit's decision written by Richard Posner, arguing that Cook County Sheriff Thomas Dart uh, violated the First Amendment Uh, against Backpage when he threatened uh, credit card companies to stop working with Backpage. Uh, In both of these cases, they demonstrate how government can use threats or even implicit threats to suppress speech. Uh, Some of these uh, theories appear in Donald Trump's recent lawsuits against social media companies claiming that because various elected officials in Congress urged social media companies to suspend his social media accounts, that turn those websites into state actors. I don't believe that the case is very well made in those cases for reasons I'll probably get into later. But uh, First Amendment professor Genevieve Lakeyear recently wrote a fascinating piece for Lawfare, which we'll link to in the show notes, arguing that this area of First Amendment law is perhaps more messy than it ought to be and opens up some possible arguments for how Trump's lawsuits uh, might possibly succeed and how these issues are coming up in a variety of different cases. Uh, She refers to the practice of government informally pressuring intermediaries to censor speech as jawboning and looks at the constitutional questions around it. Uh, Professor Lakier has written about free speech issues for many, many years and recently turned her very thoughtful and and very thorough attention to questions about content moderation uh, and the First Amendment. Uh, She is a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School and is soon to be the senior visiting research scholar at the Knight Institute at Columbia University. And today on the podcast, we have Professor Lakeyear on to discuss uh, this issue of jawboning. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hello. Uh, so 
I, I mentioned the Bantam books and the Dart case, uh, as those have been the, the two that I go to the most. Uh, do you want to give sort of a quick background for, for our listeners on, on kind of what those cases were and sort of what they said? And then maybe also some of the other cases that you, you raised in your article, um, some of which are sort of agree with that line of cases and then some of which go in a very different direction. Sure, I'd be happy to. So Bantam Books is the Supreme Court case that people who are worried about jawboning and think that it violates the First Amendment uh, often point to. It's this, I think, 1963 Warren Court-era state action decision um, in which said that um, the uh, informal acts of censorship, even when they are not, um, they don't take the form of legislation, they're just simply efforts for by the government to pressure private speech intermediaries, in that case it was booksellers, to stop selling objectionable books, can violate the First Amendment. Um, and uh, in that case, I mean, the, de- the details are fantastic. It's the Rhode Island Commission, I think, on Morality that sends these letters to all the <laughs> booksellers in the state saying, we would just like to alert you, we would inform you that <laughs> the following list of books we have considered, we have looked at and we think that they are objectionable. Um, if you sell them to youth and just reminding you that we have the capacity to refer uh, obscenity prosecutions to the Rhode Island Attorney General. Thank you very much for your um, your <laughs> <laughs> prompt attendance to this matter. No explicit threats in the letter, but uh, they did send police officers to the bookstores that received these letters a few days afterwards, just quote unquote, checking in, seeing what was going on. (laughs) So there's a lot of informal hints and pressure that they are actually going to follow through on obscenity prosecutions. And the court says, even though, uh, and the the case was brought, I think, by one bookseller that receives these letters, and then by other book publishers who were bringing a challenge against the decision by other booksellers to stop, uh, to immediately, what they did in response to these letters was they immediately took the objectionable material off the shelves. The government said, no, no, there's no First Amendment violation because this was simply private action and the First Amendment doesn't apply to private action. If the booksellers uh, decide to take these uh, books off their shelves, it's the First Amendment has nothing to do with that. And the court said even in that case, when it's actually a private bookseller taking down books uh, on its own volition, if that's in response to government threats and intimidation, we have state action sufficient to bring the First Amendment to play and it violates the First Amendment. This is a, a scheme of what the court called informal censorship, which seems completely correct to me. And so for people who are worried about government intimidation, about the problem of jawboning, Bantam Books is a useful, interesting, and important case that says even when in cases where the government puts pressure on private actors, private speech intermediaries, booksellers, um, cable companies, radio broadcasters, and of course, social media platforms, to take down speech, and it succeeds, or maybe it's, uh, that's the intention, we have a First Amendment uh, problem. But, you know, the complicated thing about Bantam Books is that it comes from a, uh, you know, it's a relatively old case. It's from 1963. It's from the Warren Court era. What happens at the Supreme Court level is that there is something close to a revolution in state action thinking in the 1970s. And so Bantam Books gets followed subsequently. I mean, you asked about, I think, the Dart case. Uh, gets picked up and resuscitated in the social media era by this uh, first, I think, by the Second Circuit uh, in a series of mm-hmm. cases in which it applies banter books to hold that government efforts to, um, I think it, its language is intimidate or coerce rather than to persuade private booksellers, private radio stations, and also private social media platforms to take down speech, violate the First Amendment. 
And then the Seventh Circuit, in a really, I think, great opinion by a Judge Posner, um, dartvbackpage.com, says that efforts by Sheriff Dart, who's the sheriff of Cook County, to pressure backpage.com to close entirely its adult classified sections because Sheriff Dart thought that it was full of illegal sex trafficking ads um, by uh, pressuring the credit card companies, I think it was MasterCard and Visa, that service Mm -hmm. the classified section of the website to um, not provide service to backpage.com, essentially strangling the financial um, um, support for the site, that this was just like what the Rhode Island Commission on Immorality did in Banter Books, and it violates the First Amendment, even though there was no law enacted and the you know, um, the master, uh, I think it was the visa um, representative told the court that they did it voluntarily. They, (laughs) visa denied uh, acting in response to government pressure. Judge Posner said that doesn't matter. Obviously any private intermediary, if they want to save face and they've complied with government pressure is not going to admit to um, denying the first amendment rights of their customers. Um, And so he forcefully, and I think pretty expansively interprets Bantam books as alive and well in the, digital age. But the problem is, Bantabooks is not the only precedent out there. And what Judge Posner, I mean, amazingly, and the Second Circuit, I think very interestingly do, is totally ignore the counter precedents from the Supreme Court uh, on the state action question in coercion cases, even though those come later. You know, and typically, you, as a lower court judge, you're, you're supposed to reconcile opinions. <laughs> if the court makes a pronouncement in an early case, time zero, then at time one makes another pronouncement, you think, well, pronouncement at time one is really meaningful. And so it has retrospectively narrowed the reach of Bantam books. Um, but that's not how the lower court cases um, shake out. So you want me to talk about the counter precedents to Bantam books? Yes, I think that, I think that would be really useful and, and sort of um, you know, sort of, yeah, what those cases are and, and basically how how the courts seem to pick one area or the other rather than, than as you said, sort of recognizing that maybe the cases at time one uh, perhaps change the way you should look at the ones at time zero. But yeah, I mean, go ahead. I do understand actually why the, I mean, I think, you know, technically this is not what they're supposed to do. You are supposed to right. not just pick and choose among your favorite Supreme Court presidents and come up with the conclusion <laughs> you want. That's really not what you are supposed to do. I understand why they're doing it, though, because Bantam Books and then this later case called Bloom v. Yuretsky, which is actually one of a bunch of cases that are decided by the early Burger Court uh, in from, you know, 1973 to 1975. The court hands down a ton of state action rulings during this period that, as I say, really profoundly changed state action uh, rules, state action law. They represent like a really different understanding of what the state action doctrine is doing, um, how far state action applies. Um, you know, in the First Amendment world, when Nixon, President Nixon appointed four justices to the court, there was a lot of anxiety at the time that, um, uh, you know, the free speech First Amendment was associated with liberal progressivism, not with conservatives. Things have gotten much more complicated today. And there was this initial concern that the Burger Court would not care about free speech issues. And then um, people sort of wiped their brow and said, "Hew, they do, because we got a whole series of corporate speech cases and commercial speech cases, and it was clear that the court still thought the First Amendment was really important. But what the Burger Court did do was dramatically narrow the reach of state action, thereby dramatically narrowing how broadly the First Amendment and the other um, Bill of Rights apply. And so whereas the Burger, uh, sorry, the Warren Court was really interested in uh, sort of the informal connections 
between the state and the private sector, the way in which the government puts pressure on the private sector or encourages the private sector or funds the private sector to do things. And the result was a whole series of pretty expansive but often quite muddy decisions saying, you know, when there is a lot of intertwined private state action, the First Amendment or the, the federal constitution applies. The court didn't quite know how broadly it wanted to uh, draw the lines of state hmm. action, but it wanted to, it was full of legal realists who recognized that the government can put pressure on the private actors to do all kinds of bad things very easily, and so wanted to take account of that. The Burger Court is really interested in none of this. It wants to draw <laughs> a really far, firm line between the private sector and the government, and it says it's necessary to do so in order to protect the autonomy of the private sector. That is to say, if those booksellers, let's go back to the Bantam Books, if they made their decision on their own to take down the books, even if that was influenced, and again, heavily influenced by the Rhode Island mm -hmm. Commission on Morality, they made that decision. And so we want to protect the freedom of those private choices from the constraining you know, obligations of the federal constitution, including, I mean, the First Amendment has all kinds of onerous non-discrimination obligations that we've read into it. So we want to protect the booksellers' freedom to discriminate. I think that's the view. And the result is a really, really narrow state action doctrine. And the case that's relevant in, in this respect is called Bloom v. Yaretsky, which is this case in which um, uh, it's a class action, a bunch of Medicaid patients who are at these nursing homes um, bring a due process claim against the, um, uh, the private nursing homes who have discharged them or um, uh, transferred them to much less um, medically intensive uh, homes. And they say without giving them notice or hearing and on uh, unjustified grounds. And they'd really done so by follow by checking the boxes provided them by the Medicaid regulations, which had been designed to as soon as it was, you know, like medically possible, it wasn't a violation of your Hippocratic oath for a doctor to say, yes, this patient can be discharged or this patient can be transferred, uh, strongly encouraged the nursing homes to do so because these intensive medical facilities were really expensive and the taxpayers were funding it. And so the, the, um, class, the petitioner said, no, no, but look, the, the nursing homes only discharged us because they were following the recommendations of the Medicaid regulation. So ultimately, the government is responsible. And so our federal constitutional rights are at play. Justice Brennan, who wrote the Bantam Books case, writes this really strong dissent with Justice Marshall, in which he says, yes, <laughs> there are clear state action here. The mm -hmm. federal government is funding 90% of their treatment. Um, it is authorizing the the." Uh, the nursing homes to do what it's doing and it strongly encouraged them all the forms that are being used are provided by the government the criteria are provided by the government but the majority including all four of the new nixon justices say nope no state action because the ultimate decision to discharge the patients was made by a private person it wasn't a medicaid regulator it was a doctor using his or her own medical judgment to discharge them so no state action so Bloom v. Uretsky stands, I mean, it's a little bit unclear exactly what the standard is, but the language from the case suggests that you only get state action if more or less the private decision maker has no choice but to do what they did because of the government's coercion. So rather than asking, you know, was the government trying to pressure them into acting in a particular way, which is really the Bantam Books approach, we ask, did the private person have any choice? And you can see that those lead to very different approaches to state action uh, in platform cases. So I guess it would mean if, back, if the Backpage case, the case involving Sheriff Dart, 
had looked to Bloom rather than to Bantam Books, the question would have been, well, did MasterCard and Visa have a choice when they chose to stop servicing Backpage.com? And I mean, obviously they had a choice. I don't know exactly what the sheriff could have done against them. And so it becomes much, much harder to find that jawboning, what we would consider jawboning, informal government pressure, uh, violates the First Amendment. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was interesting too because you know part of the um, the argument in the Dart case um, was that you know that that Dart made sort of two arguments specifically. One was that like even though he sent these semi-threatening letters, he had no power to actually do anything so he was saying well you know there's there's no real threat there because i couldn't actually do anything Uh, and then also claimed separately that uh his own free speech first amendment rights were implicated by this and and you know uh posner's response to that was you know effectively that um you know there there were there was an implicit threat even if he didn't really have the power there were still Threatened, threatened language and the fact that he had in the past he had actually tried to uh, bring legal action against Backpage itself that had failed um, or I think was it Craig's I forget now but he, he had brought legal action in the past that had failed um, and, and then said that you know his free speech rights are are actually limited because he's in the government um, and so that you, you can't go too far with that um, but I can see why, you know, if they had looked at those other cases, then then the, the scenario probably would have come out really, really differently. Yeah. I mean, I'll say on, on DART, on the question about whether you need to actually be able to enforce your threats. I mean, I think Posner, just, just if we look at the Bantam Books uh, president, he's on solid ground because right. the Rhode Island Commission testifies to the court in Bantam Books that actually they recognize at least some of the books that they identified were constitutionally protected speech, not obscenity. So like their whole thread of recommending the booksellers for prosecutions for obscenity was at least with respect to those books. I'm not sure it was all books. They wouldn't say how mm-hmm. many, but they said at least several uh, were protected. It was totally empty. And so Band of Books, was the, the court was completely uninterested in the question about whether the government could actually bring the threat right. to bear. It's what does the recipient of those threats perceive? Do they feel pressured by um, the police coming or by the threatening letter. So I think Posner was correct if we're just looking at Bantam Books, but the fact that the government doesn't have enforceable power, or at least, you know, it's not obvious how it can enforce that power, under a Bloom analysis suggests that actually the private intermediary did have a lot of choice, and then right. you shouldn't have state action. Well, and, and, and this came up in the discussions, you know, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, the comments I had made about you know, Warren and, and Cruz um, and, and the things that they did. And, and the pushback that I got um, on, on when I wrote about both of them was that, you know, these are, in, in both of those cases, one of 100 senators mm-hmm. and can't actually do much on their own, yeah. right? So the argument was like, yes, in theory, they could they could propose legislation. And in both cases, they, they, they have in some in some situations. But they would have to convince, you know, uh, a large number of other senators and, of course, the House as well and the president to sign the bill. So, therefore, they don't have enough power to actually uh, carry out their threats. And, therefore, there's no First Amendment concern in what they said. Um, and I felt uncomfortable <laughs> with that argument. But 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 what do you think of, of people who make that argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the First Amendment questions here are really complicated. And there's a whole bunch of different things yeah. to keep in mind. So... 
first, there's this big question about what do we think about Bantam books versus the Bloom approach. Right. So I'm a fan of Bantam books, but I'm a, um, I really worry about jawboning because I think we, we know that there's a lot of efforts to pressure, to informally pressure the platforms to act in part because the government doesn't have other means of um, acting. And in part, and we know that the platforms can be very responsive to this pressure. Um, you know, during the last Palestine Israel war, uh, lots of reporting about how Facebook was really receptive to Israeli government pressure to take down Palestinian pro-Palestinian speech. And, uh, given how little we know about what actually happens in government, private, social media relations, I'm just, I really do worry that there's actually a lot of very effective, informal pressuring, encouraging, and talking <laughs> happening behind closed doors that the First Amendment um, should be worried about. But the pushback to that is we want the government to be able to criticize to pressure the platforms who are themselves really powerful entities with enormous um, influence over the public discourse and politics. We want our democratically elected representatives to have a say. And so I can can understand why people might really want Elizabeth Warren or Ted Cruz or whoever it may be to have a lot of what Judge Posner in the Dart case called freedom of government speech. Now that's Mm -hmm. not, the government doesn't have a First Amendment right to speak. We might still think we want to give elected representatives a lot of power, and so then, so if we so so one one conclusion to that might be well then the Bloom standard is much better. Mm-hmm. I resist that because it is just such a narrow conception of state action to ask if the private intermediary has any choice. We just know as a practical matter that private companies. There's no skin off their back if they take down your speech. It's not their speech that they're taking down. And particularly, you know, if they make money off hosting a lot of speech, it may not matter to their bottom line whether some objectionable or heterodox voices get taken down. So they may make um, speech repressive choices all the time for perfectly self-interested, rational reasons. We may understand why they're doing it. It's still really bad for the general system of free expression. So I think the Bloom standard is really terrible because it fails to take account of speech intermediaries, incentives, and who's really paying the cost of speech oppression. But even if we're firmly in a Bantam Books framework, I do think there's this really interesting question about how much do we care about the government intent, which Mm -hmm. I think was motivating your discomfort with what Warren and Cruz were saying, because I think they were really uh, trying yeah. to get the comp- they were trying to intimidate or pressure Facebook and the other companies to take down speech. And we might think that that kind of government intent, well, that violates the First Amendment. But if we're worried about government intent, we might start thinking that's going to muzzle a lot of government speech. So another approach could be to just be much more realistic about it. How likely is it that the speech is going to be perceived by the companies as intimidating, and how likely is it to have that effect? I, that seems that seems totally fair and an interesting approach. Um, to, uh, but I worry, can courts do that? Can they realistically <laughs> assess exactly who and how and what? And do they know what's going into the decision-making it, of it, Facebook? It, it, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, I mean, I, I can just imagine the kinds of, of court cases and, and litigation that would have to go on to determine that. Uh, and I can't see that being enjoyable for either side. Yeah, and then for government actors themselves, they would never know what yeah. what what they're saying is that protected or, you know, is it okay or not okay? And then you can imagine the weaponization of these First Amendment claims pervasively through political discourse. I mean, we already see this where free speech and the First Amendment gets thrown around all the time. 
Yeah. So one would worry that even if the courts are okay, they can do it. It's hard. It's messy. <laughs> But this is their job. They can figure it out. We might still worry that it means that any time any senator or congressperson criticizes Facebook, their opponent immediately says, you're violating the First Amendment. Right. You're violating the First Amendment. <laughs> oh, gosh. What a mess. So, the, the, uh, I mean, I think yeah, there's a sorry, third alternative. I mean, okay. a sort of intermediary position, which is, but, you know, this starts looking much more legislative than judicial. But I think it is a potential way to go, which is just to develop a set of criteria that are going to distinguish sort of as a categorical matter, not on an individual really fact-specific basis, but categorically what kinds of government speech or what kinds of government mm. pressure pose a constitutional problem. So we might say, um, and this is picking up on the Warren Cruz conversation, maybe the speech of individual members of Congress, if uh, you know, not in there and there's no collective action threatened, it's not a government agency, maybe that just that that isn't the kind of speech that uh, implicates the First Amendment because it's just generally not likely enough to have the effects that we worry about. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I'm just hypothesizing. Right. Or maybe some that's other people have suggested, you know, when the government is acting in an expert capacity, so it's an agency speaking on the basis mm. of some kind of expert analysis of, say, how misinformation travels and it's done some studies or relying upon peer-reviewed studies elsewhere. That's a different kind of thing than just Sheriff Dodd saying, you better close down your classified section right. or, or else. We might think, uh, I suggested this in the, the post, you know, public letters are different than private communications because public right. letters, it suggests you're trying to get sort of political pressure to bear. You're showing your hands. You're showing your work. Everyone can see what you're doing. Maybe that's less coercive than private letters. I'm not mm. sure about that. And also the problem yeah, about that. Yeah, I could that, see it go either way. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, and also if it's a private, if the, it only applies to private letters, then we have a real evidentiary problem because right. how do you ever know that this unconstitutional stuff is happening? Right. So I'm not, I'm not saying we should adopt any one of these criteria, but I do think it would be useful, I think, to have a richer conversation about like, what might be the rules that we could apply to figure out what's right. constitutional and what's unconstitutional jawboning? Um, a, a, a sort of related question. And this comes up with the with the Trump case in, in particular. Is you know when I've looked at these situations, my feeling is that the you know the the cause of action is against the the government officials, right? I mean, Backpage they they sued the the sheriff Thomas Dart. Um, you know, the Trump cases are against the social media companies themselves. My feeling is it feels to me, and this maybe is more you know gut reaction than on any stronger legal basis, is that the cases should be against the government officials, not the not the the intermediary companies. Now that again sort of gets into state action doctrine and whether or not they can be considered state actors for for the purpose here. But it always, it feels like there's a much stronger case that if you if you have a case, and again, I don't really think Trump does, um, it should be against the government and not the, the intermediaries. Is that yeah. a reasonable take? <laughs> okay, well, let me say two things about that. So one, uh, in my post, I went pretty easy on the Trump lawsuit because I really wanted to focus in on the coercion issue. Sure. But I just want to put on the record here, there are so many problems with the <laughs> the complaints uh, and the pleadings. Yeah. Um, and so I agree with you. I don't actually think that they're likely to be very successful. Also, because he filed in Florida, which is in the 11th Circuit, 
And the Eleventh Circuit, right. based on a pretty good analysis, the, looking through the cases, not totally complete, but I've looked at it, is a Bloom jurisdiction, not so much a uh, okay. Bantam book. So, I, I mean, I think there are all kinds of reasons to think this is not going anywhere. And I agree with you, theoretically, this feels like blaming the victims of abuse for the abuse. Right. I mean, if the claim <laughs> is that Facebook and Twitter were, and YouTube were pressured by the government to do act, then why are they the bad guys? Why are they the... Right. But... but I mean, it is true, though, that in other state action cases where similar kinds of claims are made, the courts have allowed the um, claim to run against the private actor. And, right. um, and and actually, this kind of complicated circuit split about whether <laughs> things get very <laughs> esoteric very quickly, whether yes. when you are only uh, claiming, when you're only naming the private actor as a defendant, is the evidentiary standard, is the standard of proof higher? than when you aren't. So the Ninth Circuit says, yes, you can bring a government coercion claim against a private party, even though I think that's so weird because you are blaming the victim for the abuse. But the standard has to be higher than not. But the Eleventh Circuit has said, no, no, standard is the same. And I think the view is that it doesn't really matter. Like, this is just the name on the complaint. Uh, Essentially, the conclusion is the First Amendment rights were violated. You have to put back that speech. But what the Ninth Circuit pointed out in its case about the standards of proof is it's not nothing to have to bear the legal costs. So who are you going to put the burden right. of defending against the First Amendment challenge? So I, I, I agree with you. I think it's bad and weird that the Trump lawsuits did not name the Democratic officials he's identified. Right. But it's not totally out of keeping with the cases. Got it. Um, so... You know, where this has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of weeks, you know, beyond the, the Trump cases is what the Biden administration has been saying regarding Facebook um, and specifically like COVID misinformation. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on kind of how all that has has played out. I mean, I've I've criticized the way that the, the Biden administration has handled this. I, I think even though I, I agree that COVID misinformation is a serious problem, I think that the, the administration could have handled all this a lot better. I don't think to me, it doesn't rise to the level of, of you know, definite coercion, but I, I was uncomfortable with the way that they've handled it. And I'm curious on, on how you felt about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really great um, example to work through to think about jawboning and yeah. what the rules should be. <laughs> Because the Trump lawsuit, I think it's interesting. I resisted when it first came out and people were making so much fun of it for totally misunderstanding mm-hmm. the First Amendment and failing to recognize <laughs> state action. That annoyed me because I, I think that's too easy to dunk on it in that way. In fact, it doesn't claim, it doesn't ignore the state action problem. It just tries to work around mm-hmm. it. But I think ultimately it's not actually that interesting a coercion claim because all the evidence suggests that that's, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube did not take down uh, did not ban Trump from their sites because of the, you know, right. because Kamala Harris said, Jack Dorsey, it's time to do something about this tweet. I mean, they resisted right. for so long. And also there was all this counter pressure from Republicans. So if we were trying to think about the coercive effect of government actions, I do think we should take account of both the government pressure to put, take down and the government pressure to keep up, which was right. very significant. You know, and I went back in the course of uh, doing some of the research for this post, I went back and looked at some of the hearings that are identified in the complaint in which Senator, Democratic senators said things like, you should do something about Trump and um, other coercive claims. And in the hearings, the number of Republicans complaining about the censoring of Republican conservative speech 
vastly outnumbers the Democrats complaining about the keeping up of Trump. So anyway, so I think the Trump lawsuits are not terribly interesting. But the misinformation rollout, I think, is much more complicated. I don't, I don't myself really know what I think about it because <laughs> on the one hand, okay, obviously we are worried about misinformation and false claims about vaccines. This is important information to get right. Um, right. I believe that there are a few number of people who have wide reach who are spreading a lot of bad information and garbage out there and people are believing it. And um, of course, Facebook has the capacity to do something about that. So I'm sympathetic to the aims of the administration. Right. Okay. But at the same time, and, you know, and the Surgeon General's advisory for what it's worth, uh, it's pretty nuanced. It's very, mm -hmm. it's, the language is very like we encourage and we advocate right. and we urge. <laughs> it's not like you must. So I don't think the advisory itself is really problematic at all. I think it's actually trying to follow a pretty responsible line. But the news conference, the two news conferences <laughs> that Jen Psaki has in which she says, you know, there are 12 um, right. users and we, you know, Facebook really has to take them down. And then the next day when asked whether after Facebook had uh, provided its press statement, which said it had taken down actually millions of posts involving misinformation, the press secretary says, no, that is not enough because the 12 have not, those individuals have right. not been taken down. That's a lot of targeting. And then on top of that, Biden says Facebook is killing people. I don't know. This right. is very concerted pressure from the executive branch, the top of the executive branch, at a time when yeah. Democrats control Congress and the White House. And so actually do have the power to... And this is not an individual member of Congress speaking. This is a very differently positioned right. actor. Um, I don't know. It seems it's pretty close to my mind. I don't have a firm view because I am really sensitive, I'm sympathetic to the concern about letting the government express disapproval of what the platforms are doing. But I would, I would prefer if they had not yeah. uh, identified 12 and then continue to reinforce <laughs> the pressure. That does look like the government pressuring um, uh, Facebook to take down really specific uh, posts. But, you know, um, there's the Twitter case involving... Uh -huh. um, the, I guess, um, it was in Massachusetts. You know the details of this case yeah. better than I, I. So, so yeah. So, uh, I, just to know, this is this is actually a really interesting case. I was going to ask you about it. I wasn't sure how familiar you are with it, but but just just for yeah. for total disclaimer disclosure uh, this was this is a case brought by someone who sued me mm -hmm. uh four or five years ago so i, I have i have uh, a lot of knowledge of this particular individual <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> uh, but but uh this is shiva ayadori who uh you know long-term tech dirt followers will know uh was in a lawsuit with me for for two and a half years um has sued uh, well, it's, it's, the, the case is kind of crazy and still ongoing and there's lots of changes. I mean, day by day changes with, with the case. But, but um, I actually think it's a really interesting case in theory. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, in actuality, it's kind of a mess. Um, but he originally sued the Secretary of State of Massachusetts. It's not Secretary of State because Massachusetts is a commonwealth mm -hmm. and there's some other title, yeah. but whatever, the, the, the equivalent. Um, and like the election director, because they had flagged uh, some of his tweets saying that they were election misinformation. And, and they were, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, the, he 
is somewhat confused about election law and and was making a big deal. He was running for, for people don't know he was running for senator uh, in Massachusetts and he lost the primary uh, by a, a fairly large margin mm-hmm. uh, and then was making claims that ballots were destroyed, which is not accurate. It's it, there's a lot of technical stuff behind it. Um, he, he later, many months later, got kicked off Twitter entirely and claims that it was because of a vast conspiracy uh, between the government and Twitter, and uh, the case is really spun totally out of control. But but at at its heart, there is a really interesting question there, which I don't think will get dealt with. I think the case will get dismissed for for a wide variety of other reasons. But but there is a really interesting question there, which is like the government obviously has has a strong interest in uh, you know responding to misinformation about elections. Because that's that's a very serious concern. But if they're pressuring companies to take down specific information that is constitutionally protected, where where is that line drawn? Right. And and I'm I'm uncomfortable with that situation. Um, you know, I don't think this is a particularly good case for it to be explored. I wish I wish there was a more interesting one. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, well, I know about that case from TechDirt, okay. <laughs> basically, and uh, and because the Brennan Center uh, uh-huh. filed an amicus brief in that case, which you know suggests that some people are taking it. Yeah, no, the, potentially were, seriously. A, a lot of a lot of folks. I mean, the judge sort of asked for 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 amicus briefs, um, which is a little rare, you know, in a district court. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, a lot of people are taking it seriously because there is there are some some interesting questions yeah. um, buried <laughs> among a lot of talk. <laughs> but but sorry, go but, ahead. Well, but the amicus brief I found really frustrating. I mean, I respect what the Brennan Center is saying, uh-huh. but it also I thought it was insufficiently attentive to the free speech issues, and it's partly what made me think, wow, there's stuff to write about here because the amicus brief said. You know, it's really important. Election misinformation is really bad. It's very important for the government to get good information out there. So basically, just don't write a rule, judge. Don't come to a decision that's going to limit the government in any meaningful way from being right. able to express its opinion about misinformers. And I just think that that is a mistake or it's a misguided, under, it's a too limited understanding of how the government actually uh relates to the private platforms. Because we know right. that around the world, governments are constantly referring specific users to the uh to the to the um platforms either for violating local law or for violating on the government's view its own the platform's own rules which i think is what happened here right someone calls twitter and says this mm-hmm. guy is violating your rules twitter so take him down yes. this is a very familiar thing that happens all over the place and results in a lot of speech suppression and i don't think we should think it's so innocuous it's a yeah. way for the government to both hide its own <laughs> censorship desires um, by, you know, saying, oh, no, no, it's just the platform's rules. And platforms tend to be often pretty responsive to these d- d- these uh, requests. I mean, Twitter immediately responded, right? And, and so I, I just, I, I recognize the desire for there to be a lot of good government speech out there. But when it is targeted and private in this way, I mean, in some ways, this seems like the very worst situation. No, it's not the very worst situation because it wasn't the threat of sanctions. But it's a private call that otherwise you would never know about. It's about a specific user and it is acted upon with alacrity, which suggests that the platforms are really like, okay, okay, let's respond. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, it it makes me uncomfortable too. And like, you know, I I was in a a meeting with a 
with a head of trust and safety for 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 a website. Um, this was a couple of years ago, and and something that he pointed out to a government official who was there was was the thing that is hard to understand is is how do we distinguish a request from the U.S. government from a request from the Saudi Arabian government or the Chinese government because they look the same. Like, yeah, you know, there are different countries and maybe like, you know, you're expecting us to say, okay, well, we trust the U.S. government. We don't trust other governments. But that raises a whole bunch of other issues as well. When the government is requesting specific responses, you know, regarding speech, that raises a whole bunch of really uncomfortable questions. But at the same time, when you're talking about things like, you know, election disinfo or, or you know, vaccine misinformation, there are a whole bunch of really interesting questions on the other side. And, and it, the whole situation makes me very uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm not sure where to come down on it, which is why, you know, I thought your article was really interesting in that it, yeah. it raises a bunch of these questions. And I think you're right that, that, you know, people who are just focused on the misinformation part have maybe failed to take into account, you know, potentially dangerous downstream effects of saying, well, you know, this is okay because this inf- misinformation is so so serious that the government should be allowed to do this. Um, you know, you can, it's not that hard to come up with ways in which that can and almost certainly will be abused, right? I mean, yeah, you know, w- we looked at, you know, uh, you know, after the, the, the White House press conferences, Amy Klobuchar, uh, you know, released her bill, um, which, you know, has the, the health and human services uh, come up with a, a definition of what is health misinformation and, and, and removes uh, Section 230 protections from websites for doing it. And, and you know, our action is like, what happens when you have a, a health and human services person who, you know, decides that, that uh, you know, all vaccines are bad and decides that pro-vaccine information mm-hmm. is health misinformation and has to be taken down, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things that you could see where that would, would go really wrong um, and, and become really dangerous. Yeah. And I guess I'll say, you know, one of the advantages of the private for-profit, non-transparent companies having the power that they have right now over the regulation of the public sphere. And this is one of the advantages that is often made in defense of them, is at least it's not the government. And so however bad it may be, we have a multiplicity of decision makers and it's not uniform control. And so, you know, if one actor, the government gets it wrong, well, we still have the private sector. If the private sector gets it wrong, we have the government. We have diversity, which is generally, we might think, good. There's lots of, for the marketplace of ideas. Um, and this is absolutely, I think, what the court, with its very narrow state action decisions in the 1970s, was trying to protect the autonomy right. of the private sphere from government control. But the irony is, I think it actually has the opposite effect in some ways. This hmm. very narrow view of state action gives the government a lot of freedom to wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right. coerce, pressure, encourage in ways that are not you know, as easy for people to respond to democratically or through the voting booth. We just don't know about it. It's not transparent and yet can be extremely effective. And so we think, oh, it's great that there's private power because at least it's not government power. But in fact, the government has its hands all over what the platforms are doing. We know that there's lots of encouragement and cooperation and then also potentially soft forms of coercion. And that really worries me because in some ways that's worse than the government doing it directly (laughs) because you don't even know that the government is responsible. You just think it's Twitter and you get mad at Twitter, but it's the government. So I, I do think we should be really concerned about this on the other hand we want the government to be able to criticize the platforms obviously. yeah yeah i mean it, you know and, and it's interesting i mean some people raised you know with with uh 
jawboning regarding Facebook is that, you know, currently the U.S. government is suing Facebook. I mean, it's an antitrust case. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, unrelated to this question. But there is an argument that, like, you know, that is still it appears to be administration policy that, that there, there are going to be antitrust actions against these companies. And so, you know, they, is yeah. that disconnected or, or is that, you know, it, it raises a whole bunch of, you know, really kind of thorny questions about government pressure on like, so if Facebook takes down these things, does that mean maybe the, the justice department yeah. will go easier on them in the antitrust case? I don't know. You know, you would hope not. Um, but it, it, it becomes really, really challenging. <laughs> yeah. And I find it frustrating that the First Amendment cases, which for decades now have been, you know, um, proclaiming the virtues of a private market free from the government, have in general, certainly in the Supreme Court First Amendment cases, but in a lot of the lower courts too, have just really not worried about government coercion and right. encouragement. And yet we know that the government has all these levers of power. Tax law can change, antitrust prosecution. You can make the... There's so many ways that if you're an executive branch actor, you can make the lives of private companies difficult. And so I think yeah. we should all... I'm, I'm really happy that this there's more attention. It seems like... Um, both scholars and litigators are cottoning on to the problems here more. The yeah. difficulty is going to be finding a good rule. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, right? Because there is an argument that like, you know, one of the most powerful tools in, in government's box is the sort of bully pulpit, right? I mean, the fact that they can go out and say something and, and it will get attention, uh, you know, and that that rather than coercive is persuasive. Um, mm-hmm. That is that is really powerful. And historically, you know, perhaps the most powerful tool um, you know, de- depending on the, the scenario and the situation. Um, and so there is this question of, you know, if that, you know, violates the First Amendment, are you removing an important tool of government at the same time? And, you know, and, and specifically in the cases of like vaccine disinformation and election disinfo, it, 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 the whole the whole situation makes me uncomfortable. I don't mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable with either, you know, either result. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, the Dodd case I think is interesting because it does, and the Oqueti case, the Second Circuit case, mm-hmm. the whole line of Second Circuit cases that are preceding Dodd, and then some after it. They do make this distinction between government efforts to persuade and right. then government efforts to intimidate because they are really trying to protect the government's ability to use the bully pulpit right. and the government's ability to pressure. Um, but as I say in the post, it's a pretty fine line. Uh, certainly the cases haven't developed it well. And so we might worry that in fact, this will, if we yeah. were to go full steam ahead with this approach, the effect would be to cramp the government's dial when it comes to the bully pulpit. But I mean, you know, an easy way to try and protect that is say, well, so long as the government isn't identifying specific posts, Right. Maybe it's okay, although you can easily imagine game playing around that. Yeah. You know, everyone knows <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, everything gets pretty complicated, but I don't think it's impossible to imagine rules that would still give the government a lot of freedom to criticize and to cajole without giving the government carte yeah. blanche power to pressure. And at least in those jurisdictions that apply Bloom v. Uretsky, which is, I think, the majority of jurisdictions, I think the Bantam Books line is still is right now a minority, the government has pretty unlimited power to pressure and cajole. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting and it's a really sort of, you know, as I've sort of stressed, I mean, I think it's a difficult 
challenge without without easy answers. Um, but I think it's good that that you're raising it and making people mm -hmm. think about it. And I think I don't think we've seen the last of of lawsuits that are going to to touch on this. Uh, and maybe we will get uh, you know a much clearer set of rulings. Um, though who knows which way those will go. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad you, you wrote the paper and you made me think about these, these cases a little more clearly as well um, and, and about well, these stay issues. Stay tuned because I'm going to keep working. Because I agree, I think there's a lot more thought that needs to go into and, and development in the cases. So I think this is just the beginning of a yeah. potentially fruitful line of cases. Because uh, I guess, and, you know, this has been, we've focused on the complexity right. of these issues. I think of all the First Amendment issues confronting the you know raised by social media regulation this seems actually pretty relatively simple i mean it's not simple <laughs> but much more difficult than trying to figure out how to generally constrain yes. private power without violating the first amendment here at least you know this is the familiar old foe which is the government which is a significant right. foe to free speech so i think progress can be made i'm hopeful yeah yeah no i i think it's interesting but uh for people who found this conversation interesting, uh, continue to watch this space because <laughs> there is <laughs> there is more to come. Uh, but uh, Professor Lake here, th thank you so much for, for taking the time for having this discussion. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm really glad you wrote this. You made me think a lot, uh, and and uh, I look forward to, to more research and scholarship that that uh, you will put out on this, and and we'll be following these various cases closely uh, mm -hmm. as uh, as there will be lots more to come. But th thanks for well, taking thanks the for time. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, and uh, for everyone who's listening, thanks for listening as well. And we'll be back next week.